0: Welcome to What a Witch Podcast, a mother-daughter podcast where we discuss mysteries, history, current affairs, pop culture, books, movies, and pretty much everything under the sun that interests us, and hopefully you too. Hi. How are you? I am great. We are sitting in the same room. Yeah, we are. We're we are. S- we're sitting in my office. Yeah. In in uh in Texas. In Texas. That's right. In Tejas. I flew down a couple of days ago. Um, you know, flying, getting out in uh public and going to the airport and Flying in a pandemic is—it's just weird. Well, flying's weird in general because <laughs> you're so far up in the air. Well, because air.
1: we can do that. <laughs> just, you know, it is. You're in a you're in a big uh, metal death machine, thousands of feet up in the air, and you just hope it goes okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, especially so. I know. Uh yeah, it's flying is is an interesting experience, and then doubly so when you're you know terrified of some unseen virus making its way into your nostrils and lungs. I was wearing a KN95 mask, Mm -hmm. and I am not professing in any way, shape, or form to be a nurse or medical uh, hero. You're not? I mean, you took care of me my whole life. (laughs) But I did did have the scars. That M95 mask was so tight around my face when I took it off. I got to the rental car before I finally took it off, and I, I looked like I had been through battles because I had scarring on my face. Well,
1: yeah, whenever we met up you had said you know i don't know if they're still there and they weren't red anymore but it wasn't until i you know i had to really look to see yeah it was hours later and (laughs) you still had some indentations
0: yeah yeah so anyway i made it through the miracle flight and n95 masks um which i I got from, it I felt like, it was like a drug deal or something. I met my friend who had <laughs> KN95 masks and I, and he, he had extra. So I I paid him for them. And It's a backwards
1: drug deal.
0: Yeah. Here you are. Here's the stuff. Don't get sick. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> yeah. So... Um yeah, so we've had a great time.
1: Yeah. we yeah. we've, you know, gone out to eat. You came down for my brother's birthday. Yeah. Yes. Turned 30. Happy birthday, Kelly. Happy birthday, Kelly. Yeah. Uh can't Even believe. Even though he he's... doesn't listen to this shit. <laughs> he doesn't. He he would not take an hour out of his
0: life to listen to this shit. <laughs> Doesn't make him bad. He's just, you know, he's got other things. He's got my grandbaby. He's indifferent. <laughs> now, now. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> well, I don't. I don't know. He's, he's got. No, I'm not.
1: He, he, he has the grandbaby. And, Which uh, was the real reason that you came down. You don't visit us anymore. <laughs> not the only reason. You visit it
0: was, your namesake. Well, Kimberlyn. Yes, Kimberlyn. Um the baby. The baby. Yeah. And she's so cute. She's so darn cute. And I'm I can I'm allowed to say that because I'm her
1: grandmother. So. Well, she is. It's it's insane. You know, people uh-huh. say it all the time, like there are some ugly babies out there. And I'm sorry, but it's true. And she is not one of them. <laughs> she, she's, she's not. She's a pretty baby. She she is. It's, yeah. well she was made by science so
0: yes she was another episode <laughs> yeah no she was made by science she um they did the uh, IVF, IVF. yes and yes that was an amazing thing and i was there when she was conceived which sounds strange but Ew. i was. i know but i was in the waiting room When they were, when Kelly and Kristen were in Hawaii and I went out there to visit and I didn't realize, I knew they were doing the IVF thing, but I didn't realize the day I arrived, they had the appointment and I went with them and I thought it was just, you know, a standard checkup. They didn't tell me. So I'm in the waiting room and, um. I can just imagine Kristen's nonchalant, like,
1: so... I'm hopefully pregnant now. After getting
0: out, well, she—they both had this shit-eating grin on their on their faces when they when they came out, and I'm like, "What's up?" And yeah, and that's basically what she said. So, but yeah, I was there. I was there when. uh But that sounds gross. I. I, I <laughs> <laughs> that sounds gross. It sounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll have to, you know, wait till Kimberlyn's much older to explain the whole thing to her. You know. I'll just tell her she was adopted. Like <laughs> Kelly did me. That is the sibling uh, story <laughs> that's told over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. You were adopted.
1: I saw that <laughs> brief sidebar. I saw that happen to someone who was adopted. And, you know, well, yeah, you were adopted. And she was like, I am, motherfucker. <laughs> and the embarrassment and guilt on the face mm. of the person who. Jesus, man. <laughs> <laughs> We have a dog in the room with us. I don't know if you so, hear that. Another brief sidebar. <laughs> All the barking that's gone on in the background in the last couple of episodes. I'm taking care of my dad's dog. And she's a wonderful dog. She's Schutzen-trained German Shepherd. I am not used to having a barker. I'm not, you know, my two dogs are potatoes. And they don't bark unless they think someone's trying to break in the
0: house. Right. She's high energy. And she's a protector. Can you lay down? (laughs) (laughs) anyway so and and in addition to that we have to separate you have to separate the dogs right now well he's red because red's a jerk well no red (laughs) is red is dog aggressive he's very friendly with people but he's dog aggressive so you've 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 had a lot on your plate you have to separate three big dogs or
1: at least two big dogs yeah i know i've gained some weight but you don't have to tell me (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's not what i meant anyways welcome welcome you are katie jane morrison (laughs) i'm waiting for you to introduce me i'm
1: sorry i was just so for some reason i was like you can't just put my name out there on the internet. And then I was like, oh, I've said it before.
0: <laughs> Have you forgotten what we're doing here? Yeah. <laughs> and you're a Kimberly,
1: Jane Morrison. I know. I'm yeah. I know. <laughs> I know my name. It's <laughs> probably a good thing to Stop we'd... snitching. <laughs> Stop snitching, motherfucker. <laughs> I keep <laughs> It's probably a good thing that we don't normally record these in the same room, <laughs> now that I think about it. Yeah, I keep telling my my beautiful, wonderful niece, Kimberlyn, she's at that stage. She's about a year and a half, but she hasn't started speaking yet. She's kind of, you know, she'll, she'll get there and her, everything else in her development is fine. She's just, she doesn't want to speak yet. She doesn't have to. Uh, no, and she's an only <laughs> child, and she gets everything that she wants. But she points at everything, and we just watched John Mulaney mm-hmm. the other day, and he has a bit where you know sometimes babies point at me, and I don't care for that shit at all. He said sometimes we'll go up to him, and you know if they start pointing at him, we'll lean in their face and stop snitching, motherfucker. <laughs> so I've started telling that to my one and. A- one and a half year old niece. <laughs>
0: Which, yeah, it's it's not a very appropriate thing to say, but they don't understand what you're saying. No, absolutely so not. It doesn't I, really matter.
1: And honestly, it would be, I would get into the year if her first words were, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A real crowning achievement <laughs> for me. I was there for her first yeah. steps. She, she walked towards me. Um, her auntie, Katie
0: on team yeah she she loves her on team katie this is true so what's the name of this shit (laughs) (laughs) oh it's what a witch podcast what a witch what a witch that's right i try to say it differently every time now it's just getting dumber and dumber (laughs) that's right and um it's been a little bit since we recorded our last episode but right because you've well shit's been going on uh yeah You've been
1: busy prepping for flight and coming here, and then you've been here for a little work, while. Work's
0: been busy. Yeah. So... I've um, not been busy, but uh, we'll say that I have been. <laughs> you've been busy with dogs and... Uh, yeah. Dogs and cats and...
1: Yeah. Mine are easy enough. So...
0: Yeah, so... um. So today, it's, it, this one's a tough one, uh, really. Something that I wanted to uh, tackle, but really once I got into it, it it's difficult because it. I wanted to cover such a broad range of things within this topic. Um, and it is a sensitive one. It's a sensitive one. Uh, in in which and we discussed this prior to recording this is that I don't want it to be such a downer or too too serious but yeah it's it it deserves a bit of uh I don't know seriousness um it does
1: and I don't I mean it's easy enough for us to make light of Of darker things, but it does deserve, yeah, the seriousness that yeah that comes along
0: with it. And we both have experience as well, exactly. So, so as we've discussed in past episodes, we are direct descendants of Martha Carrier, who was accused and convicted of being a witch during the 1692 Salem witchcraft trials. And there's so much information that I can impart about her. But what I find interesting is that when Martha was confronted by the accusing girls, she acted as any rational person would when faced with their wild behavior. Went and said, Nuh-uh. <laughs> right. the The girls accused her. Of such things as um, of leading a three hundred strong witch army, which I mean, mean, come (laughs) on, that would be cool, right? Um, They accused (laughs) Chamon. They accused her of using her occult powers to murder and afflict people with terrible diseases, and of being promised the dubious position of Queen of Hell. So it's in the court records that she was... I would love that position, (laughs) honestly. Queen of hell? Yeah. Just be like, you
1: all are here, you know what you did, presumably.
0: (laughs) Off with their heads. Enjoy. Yeah. Just kidding, that would be the worst. I know. But Martha fully denied um, these charges and in turn charged her accusers with insanity. So she basically said... Um, You know, she called those original mean girls and they were the original mean girls, uh, you know, basically cuckoo bananas. You're you're insane. Not me. Um, but unfortunately, she paid dearly with her life for that. Ugh, I I can't imagine
1: growing up in that in that time where one. What did the, what were the justice, the
0: justice system just like, yeah, they said so. And they allowed back then they allowed what was called spectral evidence. So they allowed these girls, (laughs) if only, (laughs) yeah, they allowed these girls to say all kinds of crazy things. Like I saw uh, her familiar, yeah,
1: that was the crucible yeah, the crucible.
0: But they would allow evidence such as, you know, I saw her familiar come in and, you know, whisper dark things, you know, and so on and so. I mean, it, it was spectral evidence was, um, they, they just made shit up. They, they... Yeah, spectral evidence, more like bullshit. hmm Bullshit evidence, yeah. So... Uh, all of those details we'll probably get to in some other episode. But uh, for now, to begin our topic for today, it's not about witches, but the treatment of men and women throughout history who didn't fit into societal norms and some of the treatment that they received. Um, including, and maybe more specifically, mental illness, which covers, again, a wide swath of diagnoses and spectrums, mood disorders, and other physical ailments that have nothing to do with intellectual disabilities, but have also been the target of ill treatment in the past. Mm -hmm. And so having said that, let me... And I'm sure a lot of that is still going on today. Oh, sure. Sure. And the and thus is the problem. But I I want to preface that if I or if we offend anyone with specific terms, it's it's not our intent. For instance, if I use the words madness, crazy, or insane. It's not the terminology I would normally use or we would normally use, but what would have been used throughout history. The disclaimer is put forth because I want it known that I have real compassion for those suffering from any number of mental illnesses or physical disabilities. Um, We come from a family that has generational depression and anxiety, Um, specifically on one side of the family that within just a few generations, five people committed suicide. Um, Mm. And I myself have suffered from depression. And I know, Katie, you have suffered. um,
1: Yeah, I I feel comfortable enough saying in my own sanity and just having gone through the different shit that I have gone through, uh, I have bipolar type Mm 2, which is depressive bipolar. And I have been hospitalized for it twice. Yeah. Um, which I know were, they were not fun scenarios for either you or I, it was um, tough. yeah, for, for sure. As we pour, as we pour the drink, <laughs> but yes. And, and I, I say that so that everyone is kind of on the same page, hopefully trusting that we're not talking out of our ass
0: right that um and that we do have empathy and compassion you know for people who suffer and again it's 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 a wide range of uh diagnoses a wide range of spectrums it's and you don't have to be quote unquote
1: crazy uh-uh. to end up in a hospital like myself the the second time I wound up in the hospital was because I was on a medication that uh, drove me into a a manic state, which I normally don't. I was on an SSRI, mm-hmm. which I found out later I, is something that does not, I do not react well to. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, I mean, anyone with any a, a list of any of these mental illnesses, I know I'm not crazy. And, yeah. Yeah, but here I am. Yeah,
0: and again, you know, uh, um crazy being a uh it's it's you know it's it's not a litmus test, the, no the 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 terminology specifically, but um and and we say all that as a qualifier in hopes of not offending anyone again with certain terminologies that we use. So because uh I'm a history nerd, we're gonna go Back a little bit. For thousands of years, scientists and physicians have struggled against theologians and metaphysicians over the care and diagnosis of mentally ill people. Only rarely did the treatment of the mentally ill include the desire to understand and treat people as if they had an illness like any other physical ailment. Right. I think one of the issues is
1: just because it's invisible doesn't mean it's not there.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the attitudes, the the we're, we're still trying to understand the workings of the mind, the brain. And in the ancient world, um, early descriptions of mental illness usually carried some sort of superstitious attitude, oftentimes associated with a curse from evil forces or by the gods. For instance, King Saul in the Bible, B-I-B-L-E. Yes, I am aware. (laughs) (laughs) Was was driven mad by his failure to obey the proper rituals. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Which I mean, really. I mean, me too. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I, I, you know, like, can't get the right incense in the right container. Fuck it. I'm going mad, I tell you. I mean,
1: I mean, my issue is not with incense. No, I, you, you, you have that down. I have that down pat. Yeah, it's it's more of, oh shit. Oh, never mind. We weren't Catholic. I was gonna, I was gonna say, what, you want to get you want to put me into a box
0: with uh Never mind. <laughs> with the you talking about a confessional? Yeah, oh, um. we weren't Catholic. <laughs> we weren't. Uh, although I went to an all-girl private Catholic school in high school. We can talk about that later.
1: <laughs> Didn't you get sent home for not wearing a bra?
0: <laughs> that was, no, that, well, no, that wasn't private school. That was actually public school. Cool. Um, yeah, that was freshman year in high school. and My mom was so pissed. <laughs> <Shoot>. <laughs> no, I would get in trouble at private school for um, being out of uniform all the time and um it was something as egregious as wearing striped socks instead of solids <laughs> i know i was a little punk rocker but anyway um, so an oedipus in the play written by sophocles had madness inflicted on him by the gods as a punishment for incest which by the way is maybe why cersei in game of thrones was so fucked up <laughs> Well, I mean,
1: first rule genetics, mix that gene pool around. <laughs> know what I'm saying? That's right. That's why so many dogs get hip dysplasia. Circe <laughs> had hip dysplasia. <laughs> what do you want me to say?
0: <laughs> I'll say it. <laughs> oh, so, man. But, okay, so Plato, however, urged that madness was not only from the gods, but could also be a wonderful thing. He said, So according to the evidence provided by our ancestors, madness is a nobler thing than sober sense. Madness comes from God, whereas sober sense is merely human. I mean, I like that. I like that idea of, of accepting oneself Mm -hmm. i mean it it, clearly he had more compassion and found you know you know someone who had quote unquote madness that there was something special about that person as opposed to this is a wrong yeah this is a pariah we need to you know right
1: i just find it interesting as you know this is a gift from the gods that I will go two months with severe depression.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. That's Although I'm rough. sure you know they didn't know what bipolar disorder was when, or schizophrenia, or anything else. You know, yeah, yeah. And and also too, you know, I mentioned earlier physical ailments um, such as epilepsy was often considered you know rather than a physical condition that it, there was something mental that that there was madness associated with something like epilepsy well correct me if i'm wrong not to say that epilepsy is a mental illness but it's neurological yeah i believe so there's it's neurological that something is triggered in the brain that gives pause. a physical re- reaction yeah mm-hmm.
1: So. Weren't, weren't we just listening to something that they used to treat epilepsy with the blood of those who did not have it?
0: Yeah. What were, we, were we I think watching. it was Bailey. Oh, she was talking about the blood countess. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think she did mention that. But yeah. and And that goes into the fact that they treated some of these illnesses in wackadoodle ways so jumping forward in time you know we we talked about some ancient views of of mental illness jumping forward to the medieval insanity because those medieval fuckers were insane i mean (laughs) there was Nothing really resembling systematic research or medicine during this time. So the medieval and middle ages period spanned during the years 500 AD to 1400 AD. And during this time, the church disavowed any materialistic approach to understanding the human mind. And like we said before, there it is that damn church again. I know it's always the church getting in the way of progress. My health. (laughs) Eventually, practices such as trepanation. Would you know what trepanation? Is? No. So trepanation. I know what trepidation is. I'm experiencing it right now. <laughs> well, hang on to your hat because trepanation is, and they they have found skulls like pre like know. that's never like, good. <laughs> Bronze age, even further back. I mean, ancient burial sites where a skull has been, a hole has been drilled into the the skull. And it was probably because they thought, okay, if something was going on, maybe epilepsy, maybe madness, schizophrenia, or migraines, it could have been a whole number of things that this person was suffering from. Sure, Uh, let's open them up. a, A shaman would open would drill a hole in the skull to let out maybe evil spirits or (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, yeah. that'll do it (laughs) but they found a lot of these skulls they these people survived the operation because they could tell that there was healing you know uh which would only mean that the person survived and that I could just only
1: imagine that after that was done, you know, they drill the hole and blow some sage into it, you know, and then shove like graham crackers back into it and be like, they're all healed. <laughs> just you're you're better now. And that person's just like, I'm in pain. <laughs>
0: Thanks. Thanks, Shaman Jones. You know, whatever. Shaman Jones. <laughs> shaman Shaman jones (laughs) (laughs) where'd that come from so yeah practices such as trepanation so they were doing this they did it in ancient times but they also did it in in medieval times i feel like this uh, almost uh like medieval um lobotomy oh lobotomy
1: lobotomy (laughs) (laughs) that's that's where you (laughs)
0: That's where you put succulents in the skulls. <laughs> That's called a t-t-t-t-t-chia. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, they did some awful shit to people. So the trepanation, um, dunking in cold water and, and just good mm. old, <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yep. laughs> just good old fashioned public beatings were the treatment for the mentally ill. Um, yes that makes that makes
1: everything per- better. Yeah, I know.
0: There were even worse treatments and many sufferers were just thrown into dungeons and and left to die. So, I mean, dear, I mean it was it was a hard life back then. So, London's infamous Bethlehem Royal Hospital began to specialize in the care and control of the insane around the year 1377. Lacking any sense of the scientific method, so-called physicians at Bethlehem uh, resorted to, and when I read this, I was like, what? They resorted to vegetable-free diets. So, so I don't know why that was a thing. It's, it's like, you're insane, so no vegetables for you. I mean... I, How many people really argued though? (laughs) I don't know. Um, Just give me the tater tots. (laughs) Um, uh, Frequent purging as treatments. Purging as in well, like bulimia. Well, uh, purging as in like like torture um, with chains and beatings to control
1: unruly. Patients, both options were bad, and you picked, yeah, arguably
0: the worst one.
1: <laughs>
0: Patients were often called prisoners, you know, until the well, 17th at least they th- were honest with themselves. <laughs> You're our prisoner. Uh, so yeah, they were they were called prisoners basically until about the seventeenth century. So here's a little trivia. The term bedlam comes from the name of this hospital bethlehem royal hospital and over time the pronunci- pronunciation of bethlehem morphed into bedlam and the term came to be applied to any situation where pandemonium prevails so, interesting
1: yeah. i did so, not know that
0: yeah so yeah uh yeah arthur it's been complete bedlam in here you know it was it was I, I've used the term. Right. I had no idea that that's where it came from. Yeah. So, um, so conditions at Bedlam and at many other hellholes around England and America motivated some change in the treatment of the mentally ill. For example, the belief grew that mentally ill people should actually receive treatment mm-hmm. as opposed Imagine to... Imagine that. I know. I know. Which made for a nice change of pace, and this was spearheaded by Quaker reformers who had spent the previous century opposing witch trials and would spend much of the next century agitating for abolition of slavery. You know, actually, the Quakers were pretty cool. Yeah, they they came over with the oats. <laughs> As soon as you
1: said Quaker, that was the only thing that was in my head. <laughs> well,
0: yeah. they were, they were like super prude though, right? No. Well, you're thinking of the Puritans. Actually, Quakers were, were, um, they were pacifists and they were, they I were, mean, who could be angry with oats? <laughs> they're, they're so mild. <laughs> they can improve your cholesterol too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what uh but anyway <laughs> Sorry. no they like i said they um they were for the abolition abolition of slavery and they opposed the witchcraft trial so they were it awesome. sounds like they were kind of like hey
1: look these are people these mm-hmm. are also people i'm people why don't we all get along <laughs> Exactly. Jeez. Huh. Yeah. So, um, very forward thinking there, well, Mr. Oat.
0: <laughs> so, yes, it was moral treatment. So, the concept of moral treatment um, came into focus at this time and it was kind of led by the Quakers. So, <laughs> yeah, he got the giggles about oats. <laughs> Who knew? Who would have thought? I would have been giggling about it? <laughs> So the Get it together, Mom. <laughs> it's probably good that we don't record together. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh so. <laughs> Interior <laughs> I don't know why I just keep seeing I just keep I just keep picturing the, the, the head box. Yeah. The, the box of the
1: guy yeah, no, with we the have some hair. in the kitchen <laughs> we he's our mascot now <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Oat how do you feel about the treatment of these patients well, it's nutty. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Oh, it's our... Okay. <laughs> okay, so the philosophy of moral care was basically do unto others, right? So the idea was that patients were to be housed in large space. <laughs> <laughs> the golden... <laughs> Pun of the day, <laughs> clink! <laughs> Cheers. Okay, that was good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to get off of this for the rest of the recording.
0: Okay, Quaker oats. <laughs> so, uh, so, the idea was that patients were to be housed in large, spacious estates. Far from the city, where they would be allowed recreation, privacy, and adequate food. Like, oh, my God.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, their digestive system was just moving. <laughs> All those
0: oats, uh, uh, a little but... bit of cinnamon, a <laughs> little bit apple sugar. Yeah. You've got some editing to do. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not taking any of this shit out. <laughs> uh, Oat oh, wouldn't have wanted it that way.
1: His <laughs> name is just Oat now. Now I imagine his name is Benjamin Oat. <laughs> Benjamin. <laughs> oh,
0: okay, so so back to Benjamin. Benjamin. Anyway, so uh, these efforts would eventually decline and give way again to less compassionate care. Eventually, because of the lack of funding for many of these institutions, by the end of the 19th century, moral treatment centers had become the crowded madhouses they had originally been intended to replace. And this happened over and over again, you know, throughout the centuries um, or throughout the last several hundred years especially so this leads me to the story of elizabeth Cochrane seaman elizabeth was born may 5th 1864 i'm sorry <laughs> what an
1: unfortunate name
0: <laughs> elizabeth Co- cochran, cochran seaman, seaman.
1: <laughs> I can't let that slide. I joked about oats oh, for ten minutes
0: straight. I cannot let Cochrane's semen, you know, slide. I Ugh. I read it, and as I read it, I thought maybe she'll miss it. <laughs> nope, not missing. Not missing my chance on that one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, Elizabeth. So what is it about semen? Well, again. <laughs> Uh, So she was born in 1864. She died in 1922. She was better known by her pen name, which was Nellie Bly.
1: Much better.
0: (laughs) Nellie Bly. Bly. I don't blame her. It had a nice ring to it. So this gal was, she was pretty amazing. She was an American journalist. As portrayed by Laura Dern. (laughs) In Drunk History. Yep. Yes. Yes. So if if you want to learn more about Nellie Bly or you don't like this description, um, just you know, YouTube it. Drunk History, Nellie Bly, the wonderful Laura Dern plays the part of Nellie Bly. So she again, she was an American journalist, industrialist, inventor, and charity worker who was she was widely known for her record-breaking trip around the world in 72 days What? Um, in emulation of Jules Verne's fictional character Phileas Fogg so yeah she did that wow really? uh a woman,
1: mm-hmm. a woman in the 18 late 1800s early 1900s I mean yeah travel that's, that's actually Pretty incredible. I
0: keep trying to think of a joke, and <laughs> I just it's yeah. actually pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, she was also known for an expose in which she worked undercover to report on a mental institution from within. She was a pioneer in her field and launched a new kind of investigative journalism. So as a writer, now and this is you know a little bit about her life because she was fighting an uphill battle back then as a, you know, uh, an intelligent woman who wanted a career, who uh, wanted to become a journalist. She focused her early work for the Pitts, uh, Pittsburgh Dispatch on the lives of working women, writing a series of investigative articles on women factory workers. Mm. However. The newspaper soon soon received complaints from factory owners about her writing and she was reassigned to women's pages to cover fashion, society and gardening, you know. Because yeah, you all
1: know that every woman loves gardening.
0: Yeah. We and can fashion barely keep my succulents alive. So she ba- basically thought all this was Bullshit. yeah so she then travels yeah i mean that's so demoralizing is
1: to be like and not to say that women who do write about gardening or homekeeping or fashion that
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know that there's not an actual art and practice and those women haven't worked really hard to to do what they're doing
0: but not uh um, but to be pigeonholed yeah.
1: into that that position i know You know, I, I didn't graduate college, but whenever I was there, I was, I was, uh, an emphasis in writing. And if I wanted to, to, you know, try to try to get a job at a local paper or something doing like, like what you said, she was trying to do investigative journalism, which Mm -hmm. is actually really cool. Mm -hmm. And then being told Hey, sweetie, why don't you uh, go down and go to the store and try on some shoes? And you know, just like the fuck, dude, no. I want to uh, talk about. I want to talk about some some shit I've been seeing down the street, <laughs> right
0: <clears throat> on the corner of Spring and Mattress. Have you heard of Benjamin Oat? <laughs> so. Interestingly enough, she traveled to Mexico to serve as a foreign foreign correspondent. Still, That's cool. only tw- she was twenty-one when she did this. She yeah, was, but women
1: were like women by the time they were like fourteen. <laughs> so she was already like yeah,
0: like the average, you know. She was already getting up in her years, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she was determined to quote to do something no girl had done before, in her own words. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. She soon left Mexico, spending nearly half a year reporting on the lives and customs of the Mexican people. Her dispatches later were published in a book form as Six Months in Mexico. So, I mean, you know, that's just really incredible that she did all that, you know, at such a young age. In one report, she protested the imprisonment of a local journalist for criticizing the Mexican government. When Mexican authorities learned of Bly's report, they threatened her with arrest, prompting her to flee the country. So, you know, she was this strong, fierce, independent woman who took the job as journalist very seriously. That's dope. I know. After that... Burdened again with theater and arts reporting when when she, when she moved back to the States, Bly left the Pittsburgh Dispatch in 1887 for New York City. Penniless after four months, she talked her way into the offices of Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, The New York World, and took an un- undercover assignment for which she agreed to feign insanity to investigate reports of brutality and neglect at the women's lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island. I wonder what she did
1: to, I don't know, maybe maybe have information on that or, uh, or not. Uh, I wonder what she
0: did well, to... <laughs> so she was staying at this woman's boarding house, from what I understand, and... She didn't really know a lot about, you know, mental illness or she, it is said that she practiced in a mirror making strange faces. She was trying to feign, you know, being insane. Um,
1: Making weird faces makes you qualified to be (laughs) in an asylum. I would have been
0: in trouble. (laughs) She... So, so this is a, I think this is from, this is from wiki, wikipedia donate, donate. So it was not an easy task for Bly to be admitted to the asylum. She first decided to check herself into a boarding house called temporary homes for females. Such a strange name. She stayed up all night to give herself the wide eyed look of a disturbed woman. And began making accusations that other boarders were insane. So she was going around. Oh, okay. Telling you know the
1: other. The I other will women. say, in that drunk history, I I love the the use of there was a a chihuahua in the room <laughs> who kept barking, and she would, Laura Dern was you know they lip sync the, the the drunk bark. person, but yeah she was lip syncing the bark that. Aah! just at these random women. So I like to think that Nellie Bly went around barking barking. at people.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so she, and she was accusing the other um, boarders, you know, that they were insane. Bly told the assistant matron there are so many crazy people about, and one can never tell what they will do. So... You know, she threw in some paranoia in there, which was good. Good on her. She refused It's also to get... troubling that it was that easy. Well, that's the thing. It was very easy to be committed. I mean, there that is troubling. There... Yeah, I don't know if you're gonna talk about it,
1: but the the video that you sent me whenever you were first thinking about doing this mm-hmm. of that woman Yeah, it was being some... interviewed. Mm-hmm.
0: In the fifties or so, I believe it was uh, late forties, nineteen, yeah, yeah, nineteen fifties. And she had been
1: committed; she had committed herself multiple times, but she seemed—I mean, who's to say what normal is? But she, she was, she seemed lucid and and could recall, you know, the events that that led up to her being there and she just seemed like she was having a hard time at home
0: right what i gleaned from that and again i'm not you know i'm i'm not a psychiatrist i'm not a psychologist i so basically this was an interview of a young woman and it was a two-part interview they interviewed her and then like several years later i think they they interviewed her again but it it was a conversation between her and this counselor or psychiatrist. He was asking her a lot of questions about her background and uh, what the events led to her being committed to this hospital. And I really got the sense that it was primarily... And this is what the movie uh, with Winona Ryder and... Girl Interrupted? Yeah, Girl Interrupted. The theme of the film and what I gleaned from this particular interview was that even up through the 50s and 60s, if a woman didn't adhere to the norms the societal norms if she was a little bit rebellious if she just didn't want to do the shit that women were expected to do they were trouble and a lot of families sent their daughters their wives
1: it was to hospitals of, yeah it was kind of in a Weird way, and and I did get the sense that that she might have been, she might have been troubled. But I don't,
0: I didn't get the sense. That...
1: Well, I also, I also got the sense that she might have been gay,
0: and yeah, I got that sense as well. And it was, the the subject was skirted around. He kept he would ask her questions from time to time,
1: right? And then he would almost get wigged out, which you know, come on, but but yeah, it was. It's if you didn't fit in this really nice um, placeholder that you were supposed to be put in as, as women were back then, mm-hmm. they Just oftentimes just placeholders in a house or in society, then, then yes, you were troubled. And it was, I, I liken it a lot to conversion therapy now.
0: Absolutely.
1: And yeah. not, not just sexuality, but in, you know, you are wrong Mm -hmm. and you, you need to let, let us fix you, even if
0: they had nothing wrong with them. It's amazing. And you find it, I, I can see it, you know, today in present times, but it was even more so, you know, the 1930s, forties, fifties, even up through the sixties that there was such a construct of what was acceptable in society. And I'm so thankful. I mean, 2020 is a shit show.
1: But I'm so thankful f- at, for the for the period of time that I was born. Because, oh. geez Louise. I mean, the, the worst I experienced was living in College Station. Which there any Aggies out there sorry not sorry it was awful I was treated like shit constantly and so was Molly Mm -hmm. my my best friend Molly and she's she's a very open gay person she's very feminine but she's a very open gay person and uh, she was she was just kind of realizing her own sexuality at this point and she got the dirtiest looks constantly. We would go out to eat together and I'd be like, did you say something to that guy? He's giving you such an evil look. And she's like, no, Katie, I'm gay. <laughs> like, you know, and I was just like, well, College Station is another world. But yeah, I mean, it, it sure is. Yeah, that's the, that's the closest I can really liken it to. I'm I'm so grateful to have been born now because I would not have done well. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so, um, so well, back to Nellie. So she, she refused to go to bed and eventually scared so many of the other boarders that the police were called <laughs> to take her to the nearby courthouse. So once examined by a, poli- a police officer and a judge and a doctor, Bly was taken to Blackwell's Island. So Blackwell was, and I'm not going to get into all of the conditions there, but it, it was it was a nasty, nasty place. So committed to the asylum, Bly experienced the deplorable conditions firsthand. After 10 days, <laughs> that would have been a long 10 days, the asylum released Bly at the newspaper's behest. Um, her report later published in book form called 10 Days in a Madhouse caused a sensation prompted the asylum to implement reforms and brought her last some lasting fame. And what year, because you
1: said she was born in the 1860s, died in 1924.
0: What year did was she, that published? Yeah. So late 1800s, because she left the Pittsburgh Dispatch in 1887 and she went to New York. And that's when she got the job, the position at the New York World. Okay. So late eighteen hundreds, and wow! And and just to think, if if
1: that kind of expose is what made a lot of institutions kind of clean up their act, and we all know, in the even the early nineteen hundreds, institutions, mental institutions were not. I think it's it's pretty common knowledge. There were not healthy, habitable places to live or or to board for however long. So if that was the improvement.
0: Well then it must have <clears throat> this is this is this really good. I know. Well, this is the cycle that has been going on for the last couple of hundred years. She obviously was brave and intelligent. You know, and she saw a need for change, but clearly it was not enough to make overarching, you know, changes in these institutions. It's um, pretty great, though, that she
1: was able to incite something and, and be like, hey, look, these these are people, too, and they need legitimate help and compassion.
0: And And again, so during this time, these institutions, there were you know, in a lot of these big cities throughout the country. I wonder if her perspective
1: on what quote unquote madness was, I wonder if her perspective changed after that.
0: Well, I'm too. sure it did because there was, there was a story, one of the women that she talked to, her, the reason why she was, or the she found out the reason why she was put in this hospital was because she spoke German. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. Uh, another woman, you know, uh, Jeez, she goodness. she realized that she basically just got overwhelmed with her life. Uh, you know, probably Me with children. I know. <laughs> Don't we all get overwhelmed? So it was very easy for a family or a husband to commit a woman there was also this thing called hysteria oh yeah and and hysteria the the real
1: roots of it are so outlandish i mean you can present it as this is a weird concept i have for a bad movie script and that would be totally believable the whole concept of what hysteria actually started as Bananas, I know. So uh, you know, and it was a it was a common label, and it was a common practice for the the treatment of hysteria. If if you don't know what I'm talking about, the term hysteria comes from the root of hist, which you know, which is where you get the same root from, like hysterectomy. It talks about the the -hmm. the female um, body. And they thought that your uterus would jump around inside your body, making you go, quote unquote, crazy. And so, but that was exclusive to women. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so the term hysterical was exclusive to women, which is why it's so problematic now. you know, you're going hysterical. They legitimately thought that your uterus was jumping around your body, making mm-hmm. you go crazy. And oftentimes... Doctor's treatment for it would be to give women orgasms
0: mm-hmm. yeah, that, provided that, by the doctor yeah that that would be the that um, sounds like a bad movie <laughs> script well, there was there was a movie, yeah called, well. Hy- <laughs> called hysteria. If you haven't seen it, uh it's hysterical it's it's actually a good movie, but however not true to history the 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 man who actually invented the vibrator it was for physical like you know a vibrator like vibrators that you use on muscles like, like your shoulders yeah back whatever. massages he later because he was associated with a vibrator that would pleasure women he did not want to be associated with it so the the movie doesn't have accurate uh okay uh, but that leads me to a really funny i'm gonna <laughs> sidebar real quick
1: so so for my birthday what? both both you and both you and kristen had got me amazon gift cards mm-hmm. and so i was going you know that thing where i was like oh, i have money to spend and i didn't know what to get and so i was just like scrolling through amazon and at some point i i got to like Home and spa, you know, whatever. Because I like a nice bath. And there was a a picture that popped up for neck massagers, but it was 100% a vibrator. Mm -hmm. It was just the picture, but it said neck massager. It was incognito. And I I thought it was so funny because I, I clicked on it and I started laughing. And I was texting Molly at the same time. Uh, and I sent her a screenshot of one of the pictures
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it says instructions included. And I said, I want to buy this just for the instruction book. <laughs> I, I want to know what that instruction manual says. And so we started talking about it. and She was like, oh, honey, that's not a that's not a back massager. And we we're like, oh, she'll figure it out. Just give her five minutes with <laughs> it. She'll figure it out. You know, she'll figure out where to use it. And we got into this conversation of, well, who created the first vibrator? And how did that first come up? Mm -hmm. The answer will surprise you. I will look it up on my phone. Real time.
0: (laughs) Well, I thought it was the... um, No,
1: this is way more archaic. (laughs) Uh I laughed so hard when she sent me this photo. Okay, we need a drum roll. This is worth it, I promise. Oh, okay. (laughs) So she was like, this is, it was Molly that was like, this has got me so curious as to what the first vibrator was. I mean, humans will go to any length to Mm -hmm. achieve orgasm. And, And so she sent me a picture now, just describe what you
0: see uh, uh, oh <laughs> ah, so I'm looking at it it looks like a like a jar, well, it's a gourd, uh, it's like yeah, so so it's a gourd, and it, <laughs> it says ancient Egypt is like a title, and there's little flying things inside the gourd. And then it says gourd of bees, <laughs> <laughs> what well, gourd of bees? Bees
1: that buzz around, that buzz around and, and, and hypothetically make the gourd vibrate. So what I wanted to know is, well, how many trial and error did that go through, and how many women got stung in their vahanya?
0: Well, how many bees does it take in a corner? How many bees does it take to achieve orgasm? <laughs> well, and oh I, now I'm thinking of um, Eddie Izzard. I'm, I'm covered
1: bees. bees. <laughs> Anything relating to bees makes me laugh <laughs> so hard. There's a Cards Against Humanity card that just says bees? Question mark? And it makes me laugh every time. Well, yeah. I'm oh a big yeah. fan of and Eddie, The, the, Eddie the very right. first vibrator... Was gourd of, of beans. beans. I feel like that should be a Dungeons and Dragons <gasps> magical item. That's the gourd of beans. We're gonna
0: name our band that. That's gonna be the Gord episode title. <laughs> gourd of beans. Gord of beans. <laughs> okay, so uh, we've talked about Nellie Bly and her her attempts to make some changes. So fast forward to the 1960s. So in 1962, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was published, which was a novel written by Ken Kesey. Was it a novel? I thought it was a play. <coughs> well, it, it was. So it was a novel and then it was a Broadway play and then okay. and then it was a movie. So the story is set in, uh, in an Oregon psychiatric hospital. And the narrative serves as a study of institutional processes and the human mind, as well as a critique of behaviorism and a tribute to individualistic principles. The novel adapted into the 1975 film, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, won five Academy Awards that year. So it's... It is, I would say, I and I have a huge list, but it would probably be in, definitely be in my top 50 films. It's, it's an amazing film. Jack Nicholson is brilliant. The novel and the movie obviously made uh, a big impact. The book was written in the midst of the civil rights m- movement and deep changes to the way psychology and psychiatry were being approached in America. The 1960s began the controversial movement towards deinstitutionalization. The novel was a direct product of Kesey's time working the graveyard shift as an orderly at the Mm -hmm. mental facility in Menlo Park, California. He spent time speaking to the patients and witnessed uh, the workings of the institution. So even though it was a fictional story, it was born out of things that Kesey witnessed in these men- mental institutions. Um You know, I I just want to say, God bless
1: orderlies at low budget institutions. Because thankfully I the both times I was hospitalized, I actually went to pretty good facilities and I'm I'm grateful for that. Because I know many people who weren't and I know names of certain facilities that I've never been to that have such terrible reputation and that friends of mine have had terribly traumatic experiences in. And I know there there's a, a stigma of these low budget institutions and the orderlies that work there and how terrible they treat patients and everything. But I mean, it's. I, I don't know. I just have such respect for people who choose to go into that work to really want to help.
0: They, um, it's, it's a, it's a really hard job. It, it's, it's tough. Didn't Jamie do that for a little while? Well, Jamie did do that for a while. I, our cousins, uh, my cousin's son, your second cousin. Yeah. My cousin. Um, my cousin. Yeah. So, the, the and you know, attached to that is that the general public didn't really understand what was happening in some of these hospitals until the horrors of a hospital called Willowbrook State School in Staten Island, New York, was exposed. And I'm, I'm going to read a portion of an article that I found written by Matt Ryman in a 2017 timeline article. Um, so this is about Willowbrook. By 1969, Willowbrook, designed with a capacity of 4,000 patients, reached its That's peak... a lot of patients. Well, reached its peak of 6,200. It was the largest mental institution in the United States and host to some of the country's most deplorable living conditions. The first the American public heard of the horrors of willowbrook was from a speech made by robert kennedy who said i visited the state institutions for the mentally retarded and i think particularly at willowbrook we have a situation that borders on a snake pit yet this alarm went unheeded for seven years that is until two people print journalist Jane Curtin uh, and an ambitious 29-year-old local news reporter named Geraldo Rivera decided to cover the story, tipped off and given a key. So a disgruntled and soon-to-be-dismissed Willowbrook employee gave the reporters a key. That's pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like...
1: I feel like any investigative journalist, that's like their wet dream oh, I know. of being
0: literally given a key. Well, and this this was it was huge. So Rivera snuck into building six with a cameraman. They acquired quick evidence of an overpopulated and squalid facility at the time filled with five thousand four hundred patients. Scenes from inside. And I've seen I've seen this expose. I've also seen a documentary of it's, it was some years later and it was the survivors of this hospital. But um, so scenes from inside Willowbrook were shocking. And the local news story on WABC TV was watched by millions. Viewers saw scores of mentally disabled patients huddled in anxious uh, aimlessness. With exceptions, I know, with exceptions in the warmer months, they were not allowed outside. Middle-aged patients slept on seats. Others crouched and rocked back and forth on the floor. Some child patients went without clothes. Such neglect was especially significant in light of a patient population in which 60% were not toilet trained and 64% were incapable of feeding themselves. The stench in the uh, these rooms coming from the unclean, unattended, and and disregarded patients to Rivera resembled disease and death. So again, I watched a documentary called Unforgotten, 25 Years After Willowbrook, and they interviewed Geraldo Rivera about his experience of breaking the story and seeing the deplorable conditions for the first time. And he broke down and cried and essentially Mm. said, it changed his life forever. And he could still remember the sights, sounds, and odors like it was yesterday. That's heartbreaking. That is. So. um, Well, here's my question.
1: mm -hmm. So that sounds less like a mental institution that I would think of today and more of. A populace who was unwilling to deal with their mentally disabled children or siblings, those who were autistic or possibly had, you know, because I've seen some of this footage too. And I've seen um, children and adults with Down syndrome and I wouldn't,
0: it was, it was a double edged sword. So if, if a parent had, so back then, if a parent had a mentally disabled child, severely or otherwise, I mean, on a spectrum, doctors would often convince the parents that they would not be able to take care of their own child that it was encouraged for these parents to place them in a facility. And a lot of, so the documentary that i talked about, like 25 years after Willowbrook, mm-hmm. they interviewed some of the siblings and, and some of the parents. They thought they were doing the right thing. Well, yeah, it's,
1: but you listen to a doctor. they They know more than you. Um, I mean, that's, that's what you are, are told. Unfortunately, there were
0: children who had like multiple sclerosis or other physical ailments that had nothing to do with a mental or intellectual disability, but because they, they didn't have speech or they, there was a physical ailment that was tough for the parent to you know, take care of. They were also encouraged to, and it,
1: but it's interesting that there is now a, a distinct difference between those who are mentally handicapped, either social or intellectual ways versus someone who has a mental disorder such as extreme anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, dissociative identity disorder, mm-hmm. bipolar. I would I would say and again I'm I'm not any sort of healthcare professional but I would say that there is a distinct difference between you know I wouldn't call someone who has autism. I wouldn't call them mentally ill. I would say they have autism. There's nothing wrong with them. They're just on the autistic spectrum and you know, and that's one of the things I am not a parent, but that's one of the things that I'm like, and again, you said that they, these parents had doctors telling them that they couldn't take care of their child. But I know multiple people who have autistic children and it's just something you sign up for and parenthood. There's nothing wrong with them. The
0: attitudes were very different. I mean, the attitudes now are, are, uh, different, they're, they're more accepting and you do have parents who take on the mantle of ter- uh, caretaker for, for their kids with, you know, whether they have, you know, it's an intellectual, um, disability, um, you know, if, if they're, you know, uh, And again, a spectrum of mental retardation or... I just, I would
1: have never in my own head growing up in the era that I did, I never would have put those two things together. So it's interesting to me, when I think of a mental health institution, I think of places that I went to. People who are on suicide watch, people who are a danger to themselves or others because of their their mental disorder, having episodes. Sometimes people with mental disorders just need a fucking break and need Mm -hmm. to go to a place where they go see a psychiatrist three times a day and And get get them regulated Mm -hmm. on medication where they're forced to do that, which is totally fine. I did that. And sometimes it's fucking necessary. I never would have lumped those two together. And it's, it's wild to me because... I don't know. I just, whenever I think of mental health institution, even backwards, I never would have thought that that's where you send a kid with cerebral palsy or,
0: right. You know, and that's not even. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying, but again, so frustrating. Fortunately, attitude, especially knowing the conditions that are, are changing. Um, you know, some poor kid like, um, who has, um, you know who's a mongoloid and I mean they're they're so sweet and they're so loving and they're you know Down syndrome. I mean these these kids ha- kids who grow into adulthood they have so much to offer yeah and they're um but but the attitudes in in society were such that okay i can't take care of this child the doctors i'm going to send them to this institution and the doctor is going to take care of them unfortunately so many of these institutions were um it was a nightmare for well these... what i want to know is did they ever go visit their fucking kid and well, see them in these deplorable s- some of them did and and this documentary uh you know, this one mother um, who she definitely the family did was constantly on the back of, you know, okay. the, yeah. So uh, but lurking beneath the negative publicity, you know, so when this expose came out, it, it was huge. And, and people went, oh, my God, you know, this people are being treated worse than, you know. Animals. Um, so there was an even more heinous contour to the story of Willowbrook. So in 1955, New York University Doctor Saul Krugman began using patients as human experiments for the treatment of hepatitis. Oh, um, dear, as he would continue to do so for about 20 years. Krugman deliberately infected the mentally disabled patients of Willowbrook with samples of hepatitis synthesized from the stool of six infected patients and incorporated into patients' food and chocolate milk. So... That makes me fucking sick. Deliberate experiments. And and again... That's poisoning. Well, that is called poisoning. Well this is just the tip of the iceberg as to some of the treatment that was, you know, over again, over, you know, many hundreds of years, these, you know, patients in these institutions were, were abused. Um, It's, it's really sad. So around two months after the television special um, on Willowbrook, Residents of Staten Island filed a class action lawsuit against Willowbrook, um, and it would mark the beginning of the long end for that particular hospital. So um, the long end, it's an interesting way to. Well, I know it took it took a while, which is also sad. So clearly the mental institutions with them, we have failed miserably miserably in taking care of the mentally ill. However, have we gotten better? And that's the question. And I would say no. And I'll tell you the reasons why I think so. According to a 2015 assessment by the US Department of Housing and Urban Development, about half a million people were homeless on any given night in the United States. At a minimum 140,000 or 25% of these people were seriously mentally ill and about a quarter of a million or 45% had some sort of mental illness. So you had 25% of these people were seriously mentally ill and 45% had some mental illness. Affective disorders such as depression and bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, anxiety disorders, and substance abuse disorders are among the most common types of mental illness in the homeless population. I'll tell you why I bring up homeless population here in a minute. Studies do show that homeless can be a traumatic event. Being homeless can be a traumatic event. Uh, that influences a person's symptoms of mental illness, having ever been homeless and, uh, the time spent homeless can be related to higher levels of psychiatric distress. Yeah. Higher levels of alcohol use and lower levels of perceived recovery in people with previous mental illness. In general, homelessness among people with mental illness can lead to more encounters with police and the courts. For instance, rates of contact with the criminal justice system and victimization among homeless adults with severe symptoms such as psychosis are higher than among housed adults with severe mental illness. Homeless uh, adults with mental illness who experienced abuse or neglect in childhood are more likely to be arrested for a crime or be the victim of crime. Programs that provide long-term, so a year or longer, stable housing for people with mental illnesses can help to improve mental health outcomes, including reducing the number of visits to inpatient psychiatric hospitals. 2015 study concluded that services that deliver cognitive and social skill training, particularly in developing and maintaining relationships would be useful in helping people with mental illnesses and uh, homelessness regain housing. However, and this is the crux of it, psychiatric care for severe mental illness is too expensive. Many states have legislation designed to provide involuntary treatment for the homeless mentally ill. But often these laws have devolved into a dysfunctional system of court hearings geared towards liberty rather than treatment. So in my humble opinion, The pendulum has swung too far the other way. We have rid ourselves of those terrible institutions that treated humans worse than animals, but we just moved them out into the street to fend for themselves. I don't know what the answer is, but we're not taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. Yeah.
1: I mean, th- there are laws. Whenever I was, and it's it's different per county, per city, per state. Um, so I can't speak to where you live, but when I was going to school, and I majored in theater, and one of one of my favorite classes that I ever took was characterization, and we did a project of it was a very Um, conceptual class. It was one of my absolute favorites, but we, we did a project where we studied homeless people. Mm -hmm. But before we even did that, we looked up different laws surrounding homelessness in general. And I went to school in San Marcos, uh, Texas state university, uh, which is in between Austin and San Antonio in Texas. And we, we studied the laws in Austin. So I, I can't speak for other counties or states or, or whatever, but Austin's a big city. And I can only imagine that it is similar in other big cities. But it is, what is it? It's called um, something like the, the stoop law, the, the sit, stoop, sleep law or, or something like that, which basically says if if you were caught sitting or lying down in a public place for more than, I think it was like 45 minutes, then you can be ticketed. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for someone who's homeless? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: They're constantly ticketed and they're constantly inundated with all of these extra penalties and fines that are meant to keep them exactly where they are because how are they going to ever better themselves, get a job, get a house, if they are constantly paying these fines that, that they cannot pay for?
0: Well, and and I,
1: so I'm, I can only imagine in some cases, it's easier for them to go to jail or to go to an institution to get
0: a bed and to well, get food. Here's the thing, though. They're constantly rotated out. So they're so the deinstitutionalization in my mind I, I again the pendulum has swung the other way and uh, i
1: understand well, i think some of these institutions are more archaic
0: well than... no i i agree however the idea of We cannot, you know, there's, you know, it was like, okay, each individual has to have, and I'm using air quotes around liberty. They have to have their freedom and liberty. We cannot force them uh, to live any certain way. We can't force them into... A hospital. We can't commit them. We can't, you know, we need to give, uh, these people the opportunity choice uh, as to how they want to live, where they want to live. My argument is it to me, it's, it's, and I'm going to use the term here <laughs> to me. It's crazy. It's crazy to think that there are individuals out there who are able to take care of themselves what is the answer i get again i don't have the answer but we have a population uh, there's a large percentage of homeless people who are out on the street and i hear it all the time on the news you know the 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 homeless problem, the homeless situation, we have to find a better way to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. And, um, a very controversial, uh, topic right now is defunding the police. Defunding the police doesn't mean, uh, doesn't mean taking away
1: law enforcement. I will get up in everyone's business right now (laughs) about this shit. And I've, I've told it to you, I I've gotten into so many arguments with people who, instead of having an intelligent conversation with me about this topic, to people who I've known for years, and I've talked to you about this people that I've known since I was super young, who are treating me terribly, calling me names, and saying everything, you know. Like, it is not about taking away law enforcement. It is not about paying our cops less. It's not about keeping them. It's about delegating and and adding new programs to alleviate the pressure that our police force is forced to deal with. And I I know I talk about a lot of my experience comes from bartending, but it's true. I saw so much shit that I can't, we unfortunately had to call the police a lot for, for customers who were mentally ill or who were out of their mind on drugs. Uh, whatever the case was, we had to call police quite a lot. Or people who were threatening other people in the bar. And ninety-nine percent of the time, it was due to you know when it wasn't a violent, you know, incursion. It was because of someone who wandered in off the streets, looking like they had just walked out of a, a hospital. Mm-hmm. And we're like, "What hospital did you come from? There aren't any nearby. You have a band on your wrist." You're barefoot, mm-hmm. you know, and we would have to call the police. And we felt so bad calling the police, you know, when they have to come and take them away. Because it's like, this person obviously needs help. Right. And I don't know that they're going to get it. and Well, they're not.
0: I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing.
1: And so... Because police aren't trained to... And, you know, actually, I don't want to speak out of line. I don't know how much training that police get with people who are mentally ill versus people who are dangerous. Um,
0: I'm through with, I'm I'm sure with um, experience, they begin to know. And many of
1: them were very, very empathetic. And you can see as soon as they saw who they were dealing with, they would sit down and talk with them for a while and we would let them have a booth And so many of the police officers were very compassionate and empathetic, but they
0: leave and I'm going, what's going to happen? Well, they're again. So the law enforcement, the police are dealing with issues that don't have anything to do with protecting the public. Defunding the police has to do with moving funds. So for instance, and Some of you out there may get mad at me by this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be again controversial here. We have a bloated military budget, and I, I say that. I have a son who was in the military. I, I am. Your father served in World War II. We had, we have many family members who were military who served proudly, I am a patriot. And it doesn't make me not a patriot by saying we have a bloated U.S. military budget. And I think that...
1: A lot of that has
0: to do with fear and, and controlling a populace or others through fear. Well, but regardless, I think that we could find uh, you know, money funds to, to direct, you know, tax dollars rather than having a bloated military, uh, budget, we could move funds in back into the community where we can help, you know, if, if I hear people complain about the homeless population, like in down t- you know, I live in Denver in downtown Denver, there's constant talk about the homeless population. They have these tent cities. So they go through and it's like, okay, the tent city is unsanitary. So we're going to go in, we're going to do a sweep. We're going to remove everybody from this area. Where are you going to put them? So they just move to another area. And then it's the same thing over and over again. You're not addressing the problem, what we're talking about today are people who have a need. They are unable to take care of themselves. And or I, would be able with a little, little bit of help. Sure. And just allowing them to roam the streets is not the answer. I, I think that a society can be judged by how it treats its most vulnerable populations. And we are not treating our most vulnerable populations, i.e. people with mental illness. We're not treating them well. And we tried with these institutions which basically that was an idea we're going to take these pariahs and we're going to remove them from society and we're going to house them we're going to shutter them away and we're going to house them in these you know deplorable conditions and then when the public realizes oh this is terrible again the pendulum swung the other way and we released them all without any kind of safety net and sent them out into the streets to fend for themselves so um again i don't know what the answer is except for maybe you know changing the constructs of what we think is acceptable the, I, the first thing that comes to mind When, when I think of defunding
1: the police, and again, I know that's kind of a volatile statement right now, but the first thing that comes to mind isn't taking away anything from our law enforcement, because obviously law enforcement is a really important part of society. The first thing that comes to mind is having someone to call that is dedicated to helping the, the mentally ill or those who have found it hard to take care of themselves. I, I experienced it all the time. Someone who would walk in and either, and I don't, I'm not sure how controversial this is, but, you know, drug addiction and alcoholism is a mental illness. Mm-hmm. It is not, it is not a chosen state of of being. And so I would say the same thing with someone who was drug addled and would come into the bar. I wish there was someone I could call other than police Mm -hmm. who that's not their job as law enforcement. Right. You know, unless this person was selling drugs on the side of the corner or whatever, then I can get law enforcement involved and feel okay about it. But Someone dedicated to helping these individuals out because, you know, like it or not, in another universe, that could have been me. Mm-hmm. A lot of these people just need a little bit of help to put themselves back on their feet. Sure. And and that's what defunding the police is, is giving a, another avenue so the police can focus on the real criminals on, on the people that are out there to hurt other people. Right. And, you know, the majority of the time I was, I was hospitalized twice. Mm -hmm. And never once. And again, I will say I got really lucky in that the hospitals that I was admitted into, they were, Uh, they were really nice hospitals. Um, I was never afraid either by the the staff or any other person within the hospital. It was very obvious that all of us there just needed some help. And I'll never forget the second time that I went, again, it was because I, I got put on a medication that I should not have been on. And it caused me to go into a downward spiral for about a month. And I uh went to the the counseling office, the emergency counseling office at at the college that I was attending. And I, I told her basically everything that was happening. And she she listened and she kind of looked at me and she said, Honey, you need a vacay. And she said, there's a hospital in San Antonio that I think you could really benefit from. And of course, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going through this again, because the first time I was hospitalized, I was in high school and I was just thinking, oh, my God, everyone's going to be so disappointed in me. But I will never forget her saying, you need a vacay, because all I needed was just a little bit of help to be put back on track. And and to become a functioning member of society again.
0: Well, and I'm I'm I am very thankful for in both those situations um, that that we had the availability, we had the means. Um, I hadn't, you know, we had insurance. We, you know, you had resources. And so many people don't, and it's, it breaks my heart. So many people don't. You know, I mean, we could
1: talk about the healthcare system another episode, but I but, but it's I, I
0: think so. My thoughts are again, I don't have the answers, but yeah. we need to throw resources into community services that can help the most vulnerable. There are people out there who, like you said, can do a lot with a little help. There are also yep. people who cannot take care of themselves, mm-hmm. that need community services, and I don't care. That still deserve to well, be taken care of. And when, the, when this particular uh, terminology first came out, It got a lot of backlash and was made fun of. I'm not going to even say it. Those of you who know, I don't even have to say, but it takes a village was something that was made fun of. But it is so true. It does. It does take a village. I know because it took a village. It took people, many people when you were, in need and you were hospitalized uh when my mother was ill it took a village. i mean it just it it, the the term it takes a village is so true because it takes people it takes a community it takes it's people helping people well it is and we all need a little bit sometimes that takes funds and money and i'm more than willing to Mm -hmm. contribute contribute with my tax dollars, I would like to see my tax dollars go towards helping people who can't help themselves. So that you know, that was all kind of a tough subject, but it, you know, kind of. Uh, um, I I think it's great. I think it's. I think it's something that needs
1: to be talked about more, you know, and and the the good side of this is the fact that we're talking about it now means other people are definitely talking about it. I see more and more, you know, PTSD wasn't a thing 30 years ago and now people are finally starting to, to come to terms with and accept, Oh, I experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm And So the, I think, I think it's great. The more that people talk about it, the more normalized it becomes. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I don't know what kind of reception I'm going to get about saying that I'm bipolar, but I'm not ashamed of who I am. And it it took a lot of supportive people in my life that I have. I have a, a great support system in my life to be able to say, I'm not ashamed of the fact that I have bipolar disorder. I I know who I am. I am an intelligent and compassionate person. And at the end of the day, that's what defines me. Mm-hmm. And the, the great Carrie Fisher was Mm -hmm. bipolar and she said it loud and proud and, and, and go, go look up Carrie Fisher and her talking about her bipolar disorder. It's, it's genuinely beautiful.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. She, she was amazing. And I, I
1: think, I think these kinds of conversations are important to talk about so that other people can say, you know what? I, I, I've been struggling as well and I might need help and it encourages other people to help. And
0: yeah. And I, I guess one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this is the deplorable conditions in these horrible, what they call lunatic asylums. To me, there's no difference with the de- deplorable conditions that we have left people out on the streets for. I am not an expert. I don't have all of the answers, but we have to do better. We have to do better than just allowing people to suffer. We need to find some kind of compassionate way, some system of of helping people who who need that help so 100 so, so, yeah so that's 100 yeah That was a you did a great job well i rambled on a bit you may have to edit some- <laughs> what we both did but i
1: mean i well we kind of missed a week so this kind of a a uh, little bit of a longer episode to make up for that, I guess. And I mean, there's just some stuff that you can't leave out. It's it's, it's important to talk about. Like mm-hmm. I said, I I wouldn't be where I am today if I were still ashamed. And I think it's important, you know, a special shout out, I guess, to the people that kind of, I would, I would say, I don't want to speak for you, but inspired us. To get together and do this mm-hmm. are Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstart right. from My Favorite Murder. And I, I cannot explain how much it means to me hearing two successful and funny and compassionate women talk about their week in therapy like it's no big deal. And, right. and talk about how much they have gone through and, and I think the more we talk about it, the more it gets normalized, the, the easier this conversation will become. Mm-hmm. And ig- ignoring it and turning a blind eye only makes things worse, does not solve the problem. Correct. And um, and just because, and I'll, I'll say this again, just because it's invisible doesn't mean it's not there. doesn't mean it's not worthy of getting help. If you are struggling with any sort of anxiety, depression, bipolar, dissociative identity, seek help. And there are, as even though we have criticized the programs that are meant to help there, if you don't have enough money, if you don't have the resources, there are programs, look in your state, look in your city. There are programs that are there to help you. And I know I'm speaking from experience right now during all this global pandemic, quarantine lockdown. It has been an extraordinarily hard time for all of us. It
0: really has. I I sometimes, I go in and out of, you know, it's go in and out of this reality of what is going on and there are times when i have felt since march when everything shut down there are times when i have felt completely overwhelmed and emotional and i'm like what the fuck is going on and then i realize oh uh, you know i think this thing called the, you know the pandemic i think that has something to do with my stress and anxiety Um, it's interesting to hear people talking about stress dreams that they're having, you know, weird and vivid dreams. You remember
1: at the beginning of all this shit when I was calling you going, I had the most intense dream of my life and I need to tell you every little bit of it because I'm feeling like I am, I am losing it. And I have been unmedicated for roughly the past three years. And I have done that based on a lot of therapy to, to be able to feel comfortable going unmedicated. However, I, I've said, and you've heard me say throughout mm-hmm. the years, if I ever need to go back on medication, I know it's always there. And, and since the quarantine started, I have gotten back on medication and it's not perfect yet. And I don't have the perfect concoction. And I actually need to call my doctor and and tell him so, I've got to change something because it's not, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. But it's okay to reach out and Mm -hmm. it's, that is, that is so important to me to, to just convey, I guess it is so hard for everyone right now. Mm -hmm. So if you need help, do not be ashamed to seek it. And if you need help needing help, call up your best friend, call your mom, call your brother, sister, someone who can help you you know, walk you through the process, it's just, it's, it's important right now that, that we're all there for each other.
0: Yep. Connecting and, um, and there's having no that, shame in it. No. And having that, you know, the fellowship and, um, of the know. ring.
1: <laughs> Sorry. I, I, uh, I know we've gone on for a
0: bit. It's just, it's, it's really important now, yeah. um so i I realized that uh in our last episode, um we ended with our usual sign off asking everybody to be like Bill and Ted and to be excellent to one another, right, and to be kind mm-hmm. but in in addition to that, we quote our grandmother that when posed with the question, Grandma, are there such things as witches? Her reply was, there's no such thing as witches, only ferocious women. And, and, and then we told everybody to be ferocious. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, first we're telling everybody to be kind and then we're telling people to be ferocious. Um, so I wanna clarify and say, be ferociously kind to one another. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. So Absolutely. yeah, ferociously kind to me is like being a mama bear, or um, you know, standing up for some injustice. Ferociously kind. Ferociously kind. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's a lesson well learned. Yep. So. Uh, so what's something that you're jazzed about? Oh, gosh. Seeing seeing uh, you and Kelly, my, my son, and the grandbaby. Oh, my gosh. The best. Yeah. So much fun. Glad I came down. Glad I braved the... Uh... Yeah, thank God for that N95 mask. Yeah, I think... I was so worried about you
1: coming down. <laughs> no, I know you. I were. was telling you, Mom, I love you. I want to see you so much. Do not come down. She did. <sighs> yeah. I was a little. I was a little mad.
0: I know but she was. I'm.
1: I'm glad. I'm glad that I was able to see you. I'm glad that you know. Even though it's the the time, it's very trepidatious right now. I'm glad that we were able to gather for Kelly's birthday and I think I think all of us fucking needed it right now. I know it's better in Colorado so you're able to kind of go out and not be as as uh
0: numbers are pretty low in Colorado. Yeah. And it's
1: it's not here right now. It's it's not a whole lot better. But even even so, I I just you know, we got to see a couple of family friends You know, that it's been months since I've been able to see fucking anyone. And yeah. And you did karaoke. Yeah, we, (laughs) yeah, for (laughs) Kelly's birthday, we did karaoke. um, Lots of fun. With masks, of course. Yes. But I'm, I'm going soon in a little less than a week. I am actually driving down to San Marcos where I went to school and I'm going to be visiting Molly. Molly, um, who just who just moved. We back love you,
0: there. Molly.
1: Yeah, where Molly is a, a fictional character that I've made up, <laughs> um, like
0: like in A Beautiful Mind.
1: Yeah, she's she's just a, a fictional, and she'll she'll be pleased that I said that. <laughs> she, but yeah, I'm I'm going up to visit her in San Marcos. She's related to uh, Mr. Oates, to Benjamin <laughs> Oates. Of the Quaker variety, yeah. Um, uh, who invented the gourd of bees? <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm going up to visit her, and I'm I'm so excited. And I will tell you what I'm jazzed about. It's not this week, but it's coming up. There is this uh, tiny little town outside of San Marcos, which is already a pretty small town, just a college town. It's called Wimberley, and I've taken mm-hmm. you out there before. Yep. i hiking, and, but there is this, it's all hill country out there, and I don't know how to phrase this. Molly and I used to light a bunch of incense. Okay. Right.
0: Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There. Saint-Demain, yeah. Saint-Demain. Saint-Demain. We used to light a lot
1: of incense together in college (laughs) and we would go to this, this place out in Wimberley and it's a rest stop really, but it's called the devil's backbone because it's not mountainous, it's hill, it's hill country, but you're, you're going up and up and up and you're starting to whine. It's about as mountainous really as Texas gets, but, um, or at least this part of Texas. And then there's a little rest stop and you can look out and there, there are no lights for miles. It's just beautiful hill country and you're at the very kind of top of it. And you can see down for miles and miles and miles, but we used to go out there at night and look up at the stars and we would go out there during meteor showers and, you know, unroll a huge blanket and lay out there and, and watch the
0: roll the blanket and roll the roll the incense (laughs) yeah roll the incense Yep, yep roll in that incense it's It's legal it's legal in colorado so incense incense is legal here (laughs) Uh, that's what i'm talking about incense okay it smells real good
1: (laughs) um no but i'm i am excited to go to devil's backbone and look up at the stars and hopefully catch a shooting star or two. That's what I'm excited about. That's awesome.
0: I know. I know. I'm I'm glad you're going. Oh we need to
1: get out of the house. I'm going on. I'm starting to get a little
0: Cabin fever. Yeah. So tell tell Malward I said hello. Moldy. Moldy? Moldy, Moldy gross. Molly. So Uh, she will be on an episode at some point. everyone will get to meet. Well, I'll talk to her, but you won't hear anything because she's just my imaginary friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whatever. (laughs) All right. Well, anyway. Yes. Be ferociously kind to one another. Wear your fucking mask. (laughs) Yeah. Wear your fucking mask and, um, stop snitching. Stop snitching, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) right, there
1: are no such things as witches. witches.
0: Only ferocious women. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to What a Witch
1: Podcast, hosted by Kimberly and Katie Morrison. Special thanks to Steve Wilson and Michael Grammer for the intro and outro music. Until next time, you witch.